this week on the Backtable Podcast. I think that this is an area that we have so much to offer because urologists are not trained to read MRIs. And honestly, for most interventional radiologists, doing an ultrasound-guided biopsy is not that big a jump from what we already do, even though it's through a new portal here, which is transrectal or transperineal. I think we have a lot to offer here, and I think this is a huge public health issue, and it's something that hundreds and thousands of men struggle with. And we have the opportunity to intervene and do a lot of good in terms of preventing bad outcomes, both under diagnosis front and on the over-diagnosis front. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. We got a great multi-specialty cross-collaborative episode we're going to be discussing building a prostate biopsy service line, really, in practice with Oche Silva. Oche, welcome to the VI show. I don't know if you've been on the VI show before, have you? Thanks, Aaron. I haven't. I haven't. It's the first time. I'm excited. You have more followers. Yeah. Have I even been on the urology <laughs> show? I don't think so. You haven't. I don't think I have. We need to. No. We, yeah. We need to do something, you guys something are about close, that. You're, yeah. You guys are close second. You know? <laughs> you guys are... I mean, it's getting up there. But it's going to be great. I, I think it, it'll be bring both perspectives. Jamil has built a successful service line and him and I were discussing this a couple months ago by phone and it's pretty impressive what he's done, you know, out of basically what started in an imaging center, right, Jamil? That's correct. Tell us a little bit about where you trained, where you're at, what your practice looks like. Yeah, I'm an interventional radiologist and I did my residency at BCU in Richmond, Virginia, and then my IR fellowship at UVA in Charlottesville and graduated for finishing my fellowship in 2000, let's see, 2012, and then made the big trip out to California, where I currently live and practice. I'm in a private practice group out here and do a mix of DR, IR, outpatient, and hospital work. So kind of sort of a jack of all trades in a way, but I have a couple areas of what I'd consider to be like, you know, my subspecialty expertise and prostate has actually become one of them over the course of the past five or six years. So tell me again, what year did you finish at UVA? 2012. 2012? Yeah. Okay. I was the year after you, so I finished in 2013. And so you would have just missed Luke Wilkins, right? That's correct. I think Luke started as an, yeah. So Luke and I went to med school together. Okay. And he's been on the show a number of times too. And we've and then Ali's UVA alumni. That's right. And then uh, Rayhan Quadri's been on the show, but those guys all came after you, you know, or they were all at the at UVA after you? No, I, I remember the situation actually with Luke because there was some changeover, I remember, the faculty right around the end of my fellowship, and they were actually talking to the current fellows about staying on as faculty, and none of us actually ended up doing that, and then I think Luke was the person who took that seat. I think it was, yeah, Cenk Turba, I think. He left to go join Arslan in Chicago, and I think that's when they brought Luke in. Yeah, well, it's been great having Luke on. We've had 
Fritz Angle on, for Adrenal Vein Sampling, just for the audience. It's amazing how many episodes we've had with UVA people. And then Matsumoto just was on, that's yet to be released. And then, I don't know, there's been others too. Sahir Sabri was at UVA when I was there. Sahir's been on a number of times. Who else is there? There was one more that I was about to say. But anyway, yeah, it's it's been great having all the UVA people on. So let's get into it. Let's talk about prostate biopsies, a procedure that's typically done by urologists under ultrasound guidance. Am I right, Oche, for the most part? Yeah, I personally, uh, with the COVID, we couldn't do anything in the in the office. I started doing MRI fusions, and, and that's been my standard since. I still do regular transrectal biopsies, ultrasound guided, just because there's no pyrus lesion. The patient has elevated PSA. I'm doing now also exosome DX that will help AA to choose the patient or not do it unnecessary biopsies, essentially. And But yeah, I still do ultrasound guided, but mainly fusion. Okay. So like, for example, me in residency, fellowship, never even looked at a prostate, right? Whether it be ultrasound, MRI, that was pure urology territory. And now you were seeing a lot more radiologists do all kinds of things, including PAE, and not only having to, but wanting to read prostate MRI. Can you tell us, Jamil, how this started? Because you and I were kind of contemporaries in terms of training. Right. So the way it worked was basically the private practice group that I work with, we contract a certain number of days a month to this other radiologist who owns an imaging center in Ventura. He actually owns four imaging centers. And this would have been back in 2016, basically, 2017, something like that. He was basically interested in growing his outpatient prostate MRI business. And one of the ways he thought he would do this was by acquiring a fusion biopsy platform for his imaging center, okay? And this would have been at a time where there basically was no place to get this procedure performed in our community. So patients were either driving about two hours south to Los Angeles or about five hours north to San Francisco, basically to an academic medical center. There was no place to do it locally. So we thought, well, if we can start offering the service, you know, the diagnostic MRI business will grow and, you know, we'll make prostate a bigger part of our offering. And then he just approached me basically saying, oh, you know, we're going to start doing these fusion biopsies. Are you interested? You know, we're going to have a bunch of people involved. And I basically said, sure. As an IR, sometimes you're often asked to like maybe do things that you've never done before. And I think especially when you're new out of training or relatively new, you know, your attitude is like, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. You, know, you try not to have blinders on about too much. But I mean, I really had never done any transrectal procedures. I mean, I think I had done maybe a couple abscess drainages in residency. As you know, even those procedures are pretty few and far between in terms of diagnostic or interventional radiology training. You know, we get very comfortable with CT, transperineal ultrasound, or, you know, transcutaneous ultrasound, so on and so forth. So basically, we worked with the urologists and our local urologists, and we identified some patients that had already had prostate MRIs who needed biopsies. Hey, Jimmy, I want to interrupt you just one minute. I want to back up, and I want to find out more about how you learned how to read prostate MRI. Oh, yeah. And I think this is the crux of actually why I reached out to you about this topic in ways. When I first started doing these biopsies, I was not reading the MRIs. It's like a pulmonologist asks you to biopsy a, a lung nodule or something, and you may not have read that chest CT, right? You're just the person doing the biopsy. And I did these biopsies, honestly, for almost a year without reading the MRIs. Or I would look at the MRIs for the biopsies I had that day. But to be frank, I didn't really know what I was looking at. I mean, I was still on the learning curve myself. 
But what I found is as I started doing biopsies, I always try to frame this as if it was like breast imaging, but for the man, you do a biopsy, you get a pathology result, and now you have an opinion on the imaging that you didn't have before. And then you do the next biopsy and then it goes on and on. So you start to get to the point where you're going to the room and you look at the MRI and you say, okay, well, that's a real lesion. That's definitely a cancer or, oh, this is nothing. I don't even know if this needs to be biopsied at all. I guess we're going to do it, but what's the point? And that was when I switched over to reading them actually. So in this case, the procedure came first and then the diagnostic component came after that. The results were strengthening your ability to like know what was a real lesion what, and, and interpreting that, right? Jamil, quick question. Are you doing just targeted biopsy or are you doing the targeted and then a random also? Generally, we're doing both. My rule of thumb is if they have had a random biopsy in the past six to 12 months, I don't repeat it necessarily. Unless there's some kind of PSA went sky high in the interim or something like that, we really feel like we missed something. But generally, we don't repeat it unless they've never had one before. But we know actually that just MRI negativity doesn't mean you don't have clinically significant cancer. So we do do templates on, on our fresh patients. So that process of learning, uh, reading the MRI, what do you do? I mean, do courses, talk to other colleagues? How was it that you started learning how to read them? And also based on what you saw on the negative biopsy or part of the biopsies? Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't do any courses. I mean, there are some books I read. I'm like MRI of the Prostate, the Rosencrantz book. I think that was the first one that I read. And then, of course, I read through all that whole Pyrads 2.1 document. I read that entire thing, and that's quite lengthy. And then um, I just tried to grab different papers and see. But really, I think the main thing I did, it's an iterative process of looking at biopsy results, looking at MRIs, right? Because sometimes you do a biopsy, your targeted lesion was negative, but then you had a glycinate cancer in a different part of the gland. Okay, now we go back to the MRI. Was there something there? Was there not something there? And right now, the way it is, I think in 99% of practices, you have urologists doing biopsies and managing the patient over here. You have radiologists reading the MRIs, really, I think, in quite a bit of a vacuum. And the two, they don't really speak the same language in a way, I think, urologists and, and radiologists, unless there's already been a close collaboration established. But I see what happens is the urologist gets a report and I sometimes look at outside reports and I have hard times making heads or tails of what's being communicated in that report. So to me, like the beauty of having the radiologist more involved on the biopsy side is you have an integration of the imaging knowledge with the knowledge of the disease. Yeah. And so this was like several years ago before, because I, for example, now there's these online courses like Modality, I think is the new name for it. And these courses are pretty slick and like they have it all spelled out for you. It's with CME, it's really nice, and they have they have prostate-specific courses. So, Ochi, that is a great resource because they have a nice MRI prostate course on there. But so, like, next step, you so you start reading these MRIs, you're doing the biopsies. You mentioned patients were coming in because they had to travel, but, like, where mostly were these referrals coming from? Were they coming from primary care docs or just urologists or a little bit of both? Yeah, it's so starting out, it was 100% urologists, you know, basically the same, like six or seven, you know, local urologists. And then it's interesting, we did start seeing primary care referrals coming in. So that becomes a different relationship with me, right? Because now I'm not just the person doing the biopsy, I'm actually their prostate doctor. And I'm sort of in charge now of 
seeing them through this whole thing and then making a urology referral maybe you know once we have a diagnosis established. And those patients that the primary sending already had a pyrite lesion or just elevated PSA? No, no, they're coming with an MRI. So basically, right, what happened was the PCP ordered the MRI, they get a pyrats for a lesion, and then they're like, okay, you know, I ordered an imaging study, they found something, I'm going to order a biopsy now. The same way the primary care doctor, again, might order an abdomen CT, find a pelvic mass, and maybe the primary care doc will order the biopsy rather than referring immediately to surgery. That's 5% of the practice. I would say the majority are coming from urologists. I have a question regarding, you, you meant in that specific patient that you saw that the pyrosolution is negative, but then have cancer in other areas. When you went back and look at the MRIs, was there a lesion? I mean, or, so it's a user-dependent or, or the MRI? Not always. That's what I've learned. Sometimes you can't find the smoking gun, you know what I mean? Even when you go back and look, which I think is very humbling in terms of teaching us the limitations of the technology. I mean, what I've really found is that there are two basic patterns of cancer in the prostate. You have lesions and you have infiltrative disease. I mean, that's a little bit reductive, but I would say there's a lot of infiltrative disease that is MRI invisible. You know, even with a high quality MRI, well interpreted, you go back and look at it, you don't see anything there. So really the power of MRI is actually to identify lesions, I think not to identify infiltrative disease. No, that, that's exactly right. And that's, I mean, I'm switching the topic a little bit, but definitely that's where a focal ablation that will fall short in those patients that you're missing the actual more important lesion. Jamil, can you just for our sort of newbies in the audience, dumb it down for a minute and just go over the grading system real quick. And then that way, because I know you guys are going to be referring to the grades throughout the, the probably the rest of the podcast, but if you'll just go over that real quick for, our, especially for our radiology audience. Right. So I think a lot of people are probably aware that grading systems have become more common in radiology in general. You know, now we have them in the liver, we have the thyroid. They originated, I believe, in the breast with the BIRAD system. And so in prostate, we have a PIRAD system where each lesion is graded one, two, three, four, or five. PIRADs one and two you can basically lump them together, I think, because they basically both mean that a lesion we consider to be 100% benign with no malignant potential. Pyrads 4 and 5 are typically lesions that we have a high suspicion for malignancy, and they're predominantly differentiated by the size of the lesion, um, with pyrads 5 lesions being greater than a centimeter and a half and pyrads 4 lesions being smaller than a centimeter and a half, but with essentially the same imaging characteristics. Then we have the lesion in the middle, the pyrats 3 lesion. It's a little bit complex as to what can be a pyrats 3 lesion. You know, when you look through the pyrats grading system, there's a couple different rules you can apply based on whether a lesion is in the transitional zone, based on whether it enhances, based on whether it's in the peripheral zone. Generally, we consider pyrats 3 lesions to have, a, there's a chance of malignancy, but a relatively low chance. Looking through the literature, you see anywhere from like 10% to 30% things like that, okay? And I think those are the lesions actually the most people struggle with are the PIRADS 3 lesions. One thing about the PIRADS document is that it gives you a framework to assign a score to a lesion, but then it doesn't tell you what to do afterwards. So there's no recommendation made whether all PIRADS 5 lesions have to be biopsied or all PIRADS 3 lesions should be followed with a repeat MRI. I think we're all still figuring that out as a medical community, what to do with these lesions. And to your point, I mean, I was going to ask you, I have, where I work, I have definitely find some, some radiologists that are 
when they're saying chronic prostatitis, I do a biopsy most of the time, it is a lesion. So I don't know if you can explain it, but the difference between a chronic prostatitis or a, or a real lesion, a PARES 4, PARES 5, at least to a urologist, how, how will you explain that to a urologist? I think that is a difficult, I, I think we've like skipped right ahead to like actually a pretty difficult question there. Sorry. <laughs> okay. No, 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 that's okay. I mean, because I like thinking about that kind of thing. I think it's very difficult for me to say definitively on an MRI, someone has chronic prostatitis versus cancer because they look so similar. Even acute prostatitis actually looks even more like cancer than chronic prostatitis. And actually, one thing I have done, and I, I've got a little bit off the reservation in the way I report these things, and I don't do a strict PIRADS designation always in my reports. So a lot of times what, we, what I see is I read an MRI and I don't see a lesion, but the peripheral zone is extremely irregular and has a lot of enhancement, but like diffusely. And so what I typically say in that case is, look, the peripheral zone is diffusely abnormal. This could either be diffuse malignancy or diffuse prostatitis. But the bottom line is they don't need a targeted biopsy in that case, right? You're going to pick that up with your template biopsy. So I, I find the role of MR is not to say, the MRI cannot tell you you don't have prostate cancer. It can only tell you whether you need a fusion biopsy is the way I look at it. Now, if an MRI is normal, PSA is relatively normal, or let's say it bumped and now it's normalized, I mean, we have a high degree of probability patient doesn't have prostate cancer, but it's not 100%. It's the same right with breast. Like negative mammogram doesn't mean you have donor breast cancer. To your point, I mean, that some patients, a 55-year-old, the PSI has been increasing. I order the MRI. I tell them, hey, you're going to get probably a biopsy no matter what. It's just to figure out if, we're, if, we, if there's a possible lesion that we can target. And that way, even if the MRI is Pyrus 2, they say, well, I don't have cancer. Well, that's not what it means. Is there any other kind of key terminology, Jamil, when you're talking to urology colleagues about this that you found to be helpful or you had to kind of learn along the way just to help anybody who's starting out? Yeah, let me think about that. Well, I think one thing everyone should be aware of is that when you're reading these MRIs, you're really looking for, you're looking for lesions everywhere, but you're really looking for the lesions that are going to be missed by a conventional biopsy. And those are going to be most commonly found at the apex of the gland or anteriorly in the gland, sometimes originating from the transitional zone, but also, and I don't see this talked about that much, but the peripheral zone tends to actually come up laterally on each side of the prostate gland, and you can get some very aggressive lesions coming from the peripheral zone that project anteriorly, look like they're part of the transitional zone in a way, but they're really in the peripheral zone. But I think radiologists should know when you're reading these MRIs, a couple things. It's really important to give an accurate volume because not just as a matter of bookkeeping or completion, but it's really important in terms of helping the urologist figure out whether their PSA is truly elevated or not, getting an accurate volume. And even if you have to do it a couple of times, it's something where you may want to spend more care than you think, even if the MRI is negative. You want to be very clear about whether something is in the peripheral zone or the transitional zone. And then the, the other areas you really want to look at are the seminal vesicle attachments, because a, a, certain, a decent number of cancers will start at the lateral bases of each prostate gland and actually extend into the seminal vesicles. And it can be subtle, but it has a big impact on the staging of these patients. I think now we're getting into an era where there's more focal therapy being performed. And actually, so the impact of what we say in these radiology reports is going to become more important. 
before, if you miss certain things, it didn't matter. It was a binary cancer, no cancer, and they're going to destroy or the gland, you know, either going to ablate it with radiation or they're going to remove it surgically. So it doesn't matter if you miss something in the contralateral gland or not. But now I think all of these things are going to become more important as we move into the focal therapy age. I don't know if that answered the question or not, but. No, that's perfect. <laughs> to be honest, that's exactly what I was looking for because those are some great tips in there. Oche, anything off of that question? Anything to add to that? No, I, I think it's perfect. And, and that's why, I mean, for the exact same reasons that you mentioned is why I want to learn reading the MRI. Because I, I want to know, hey, maybe not all the radiologists are doing it like you're doing it. So definitely, at the end of the day, if we are making the decision where to go with this patient, either surgery, radiation, or a focal ablation, we need to know what we're dealing with. And I think that's right. I mean, I think what you're doing is you're basically realizing that there is a knowledge gap, you know, and you're crossing it from your side and I'm crossing it from mine. But unfortunately, I think it's a knowledge gap that is the norm for the most part in, in prostate MRI interpretation in 2023 rather than the exception. I contrast it to, for example, kidney masses. I mean, we, we definitely, we're good there. We know if it's touching the collective system, if it's outside, good for RF, RFA or cryo or surgery, partial. So we're good there, but definitely we need to have that same knowledge in terms of the prostate. And I think we as always, we're not there. Right. But of course, the, the challenge you're going to have also is that you don't, you're never going to be, well, I don't know. I, cannot, I don't know if never is the right word. As it currently stands, you're not the primary interpreter of an MRI. It still hits the radiologist. And so that person still has a big impact on which direction that patient goes. You know, um, now I guess you can just read, you can read all your patients' MRIs, even if they're negative. You can do a double read on them. But yeah, I do think Which this makes is, sense. I mean, yeah. I think this is a space where radiologists have a lot to offer in the exact same way that we diagnose and help work up breast cancer. I think they're very equivalent diseases. They are both exceedingly common. The difference, I think, with breast is that the stakes are much higher because even though prostate cancer is a more common disease than breast cancer, the vast majority of prostate cancer is low grade, as we know. Whereas with breast cancer, if you miss a lesion, you may not get to a chance to, to catch it next year. In that 12 months, that may be it. With prostate cancer, that's almost always the case. Actually, if you miss a lesion, if you decide, well, maybe we'll just, let's hold off on biopsy right now and recheck in six months. That's almost always a safe decision in prostate biopsy. Like you mentioned, I just want to add that definitely how we're seeing it now is that if it's six months, it's six months without patient having to need a treatment and right. at least don't suffer the side effect from a surgery or radiation. So definitely that's why we're trying to be less aggressive. And it's just because we know that there's the chance of metastatic disease in that six month a year is very low. Extremely low. Because I think one bias that radiologists have when they're interpreting imaging studies whether it's in the breast, whether it's in the abdomen, is we really don't want to miss cancer. So we tend to be very aggressive about, we call small things in the lungs, we call small things in the pancreas, in the kidney, because we don't want to miss a cancer. But if you interpret a prostate MRI and you identify five pyrats, three lesions, that's not doing the patient a service. You may have covered yourself that you're not going to miss any lesions, but now the patient's going to have a billion biopsies and they're all going to turn out to be negative or Gleason 6 disease, and you really haven't done them the service you could be doing actually by calling that scan low risk. I want to move on a little bit to the actual biopsy itself and your technique. So all of my prostate biopsies are by ultrasound. I can talk through the way 
that works. So the system I use is a Philips system called the Perky Nav. Now, a lot of urologists are familiar with a somewhat similar system that is actually also owned by Philips, although it was developed independently of the Perky Nav called the Euronav. Euronav is a good point of comparison. It's a well-known platform. The Euronav is designed for urologists to do fusion biopsies under ultrasound guidance. The Perky Nav is not a separate standalone system like the Euronav is. What it is, is it's a software package that is added onto an existing Philips ultrasound machine. It can actually be used for lots of different types of biopsies. You could, for instance, biopsy a liver lesion that was only MRI visible using this system. You could biopsy a, or you could ablate a kidney lesion that was only MRI visible but ultrasound invisible using this system. The advantage for this system is that it's much, much cheaper than the Euronav system because it's only a software add-on to, in our case, a machine that we already had. I don't have any financial interest in Philip, but I have to say that if it wasn't for this particular product, I wouldn't be in this in this line of work, actually. So it's nice in a way that because fusion biopsies are, tip, are not paid any more than conventional biopsies, you have to consider the cost of some of these platforms can be hundreds of thousands of dollars to do fusion biopsy. And there's no accompanying increase in reimbursement to offset that cost. So that's why I mentioned that the cost of the Perkinab is, is a real advantage. But the way it works is you get the MRI and you load the MRI into the machine. And the MRI does not have to be marked in advance by the interpreting radiologist for you to do this, which is a difference from the Euronav platform. Once the MRI is loaded into the machine, I go through and I can set the targets myself. Usually, on, I usually pick the axial T2 image and I'll just say, here's target one, here's target two, here's target three. And then we do the biopsy. So, Jamil, quick question yes. there. So, you do the ultrasound first, then go to the computer? No. And do the mapping or? What we do is there's two parts of the procedure. There's the target selection, which is purely done based on the MRI. And then there's the registration or the fusion, whatever you want to call it, where we put the patient on their side, we prep the rectum, place the ultrasound, and then once the ultrasound probe is in place, we then will map the ultrasound images to the MRI images. This is the biggest learning curve in the entire procedure by far, because you have to be able to understand ultrasound anatomy and MRI anatomy well enough to find points of similarity between the two. You know, when I was first starting out, if I could find like a cyst, I was like stoked right? Because the cyst is obvious on ultrasound and on MRI. And while I definitely know that these two points are the same, now I've been doing it long enough that I can say, okay, well, here's where the urethra exits the prostate gland. So now I can teach the machine where the midline is and where the apex is. Here's the seminal vesicle attachment or all right off the seminal vesicle attachment. So now I can teach the machine where the right lateral base is or the left lateral base. But all of that is done in real time, basically. The computer will not do that for you. You have to do it yourself. And that is actually when we first started doing these biopsies, the idea was to do a urology-radiology collaboration. We were all going to do them together. And every urologist that came actually got scared off by that part of the procedure <laughs> and said, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, forget this. You seem like you have this under control, you know, <laughs> basically. And then I became the sole practitioner in what was supposed to be a multi-specialty kind of <laughs> kind of thing. 
I have used Urnav and, and Navigo, which is essentially what you mentioned, that the mapping is done beforehand, and then you use the, the transducer, and the machine does it for you. And it's pretty simple in that sense, not like you just mentioned. Right. So definitely probably won't get never to that point like you're doing right now. But yeah, but it sounds, if you know what you're doing, you're going to probably do a much better and accurate biopsy of the prostate. Yeah. And the other thing I like is that I will do an ultrasound, a full diagnostic ultrasound before we even skip to the MRI. I'll look and see, you know, maybe there's an ultrasound lesion that was missed on the MRI. Maybe the MRI was done non-contrast for whatever reason. They couldn't get an IV, you know what I mean? And so there are some limitations or there's motion or whatever. So for me, they're also getting a diagnostic ultrasound before we even start the biopsy. And I may even, I've done this before where I add lesions. I've also taken lesions away, you know, where I was already pretty low suspicion based on the MRI. Maybe like the interpreting radiologist identified like a lot of lesions. And I'll evaluate each of them and say, okay, maybe I can get rid of one or two of these, you know what I mean? And, and make this a more focused procedure. And with the ultrasound, Jamil, you, you did the same thing, the same process as with the MRI, that you went back and look at those biopsies and see, hey, this, that I thought it was something else, it actually was a tumor, and then you learn from that? Yeah, you definitely do that. I mean, as you know, with ultrasound, the issue is you never have the whole data set, right? You only have the images that you had the foresight to save in advance, you know? So if I do a template biopsy and I find a high-grade cancer, I don't, I don't necessarily save an image of every part of the prostate before I biopsy it. But I save any lesions I'm suspicious of in the machine, and then we save an image of the needle in place, obviously, each time. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things I really like about the way we do it is that it's a very comfortable experience for the patient, and it's a pretty quick experience. So we use a 4% lidocaine gel before we start. It's not something that the hospital pharmacy has, something that we have an outside pharmacy that compounds it. And then I do a uh, nerve block on each side of the prostate, which I was taught to do by a urologist. I think that's a fairly standard part of the procedure. And I use about seven to eight milliliters of 1% lidocaine on each side of the prostate, plus the copious amounts of the 4% lidocaine gel. And I would say that that, the procedure is surprisingly, for the majority of patients, very easy to get through. And about half of them will have a Xanax about an hour beforehand. We leave it up to the patient. So if they want to, if they think they want a Xanax, they get here a little early. We give it to them maybe, yeah, 45 minutes to an hour beforehand, and then we do it. But, you know, we don't start an IV. We don't do conscious sedation or anything like that. And when the patients are done, they leave. Like 10 minutes later, they walk out. Then antibiotics, fleet enema prior? Yeah. Antibiotics, if I'm getting the patient from a PCP, I'll prescribe antibiotics. But most frequently they're already getting antibiotics prescribed by their urologist. The reason is, is I'm seeing them on the day of the urologist. They need to start their antibiotics typically the day before. So, And different urologists have different opinions on whether patients need rectal swabs or whether they can all just get a fluoroquinolone. It's an 18-gauge, just core biopsy needle. It's kind of a standard urology biopsy needle. I can't remember the name of it offhand. It's designed, the length of it is designed to go through that probe, right? So it's quite long outside the patient, longer than what we're used to using in radiology because so much of it just sits in the probe before it fires. Kind of like our transjugular biopsy devices. Not that long. <laughs> Not that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, somewhere in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, I think the longest we have on the shelf is like a 20 centimeter for whatever big 
big yeah, and, bellies and maybe and it stuff is like just that. a 20 centimeter that might be enough yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's a very simple yeah, but very similar like side cutting or yeah side cutting single button fire you know what i mean you don't have to yeah. load it or mm-hmm. you know or crank it back or anything like that so and it, it takes it. a two centimeter core every time yeah. there's no flex on that and is it a, kind of like a debate right now actually like transperineal versus transrectal? I mean, so yeah, so the biggest thing is just prostatitis, sepsis after the procedure. I'm still doing transrectal, but I'm trying, I'm started the process of, of going transperineal. I do them in the OR under sedation. I will say the drawback or the setback right now that I haven't switched is that for some reason, if the patient is supine, they want to put a tube in, the anesthesiologist. So, I mean, and then more time for the procedure. And also, I mean, it changes what we do in the OR. So that has been the limited step for me. But yeah, I think everything is going. Most academic centers are just doing transperineal because of the risk of the infection. It goes down almost to zero. Yeah, I'm still doing transrectal. And I definitely recognize just based on the literature and discussions with other urologists that transperineal is is the future. I do have some reservations about it in a way because as Dr. Silva said, you have a lot more complexity once you go to, I think, the transperineal route logistically. And rates of sepsis with transrectal, while not zero, are quite low, actually. You know, And so once you start talking about giving anesthesia and things like that, well, now you're also increasing the risk of a separate... I mean, anesthesia complications are also low, but they're also not zero. The other thing is that the transrectal biopsy, the way we do it, Again, I want to emphasize, it's such a comfortable, easy procedure for patients to undergo. They come in with a lot of trepidation and fears, and they leave, honestly, with a smile on their face most of the time. And I wonder if some of that would be lost in the transition to transperineal. And also in terms of postoperative pain, where you're talking about doing all these punctures through the perineum, the rectum is you know, relatively insensate compared to the cutaneous. Yeah, in terms of pain, I haven't heard that much from colleagues that do transperineal. But yeah, I mean, unless you already have a setup in your office that you're comfortable doing them in the office, uh, the patient's supine. Because for me, I would have to buy a new setup in terms of the bed to try to do it in the office, for example. Like you mentioned, the logistic changes. Okay, so any other complications to avoid? You know, we talked about sepsis being the, the big one and anesthesia complications. Anything else? Yeah, the issue with sepsis is that there's not that much you can do to avoid it. I think that's really bit other than doing transperineal. Like when you're doing transrectal, it's not one-to-one, but, you know, there is a relationship between number of biopsies taken and increase of complications, which, again, is why I think it's not always appropriate to do a template biopsy and then do biopsies of, like, five other lesions because you're just increasing your needle passes. And so I think being selective helps limit complications. I typically, for a targeted lesion, I will typically do two passes if I really feel like I bullseyed it, and three if I'm a little wishy-washy, and so I'll I may do three and make them all slightly different because I don't want to be at the edge of a lesion and get potentially lower grade cancer. You know, oh, it was a cancer, it was Gleason 6, but actually the center was Gleason 8. It's very easy with a targeted biopsy to all of a sudden be in the realm of doing like 20 needle passes, even more in a given procedure because you have 12 plus two to three times each number of um, lesions you have. That is definitely the major complication. I would say, you know, when you're doing these biopsies, as a radiologist and sort of new to the whole process, I always avoid the the bladder. Um, and sometimes that can be difficult with the anterior lesions. And because your biopsy needle just fires, it doesn't come out and then take a side core later. You know, you really have to pay attention to how far your needle tip is 
from the bladder before you fire. And I always try and avoid the, the urethra. So if I'm biopsying from the right, my probe is in what? It, basically at the 12 o'clock position. If the patient's laying on their side, if I'm biopsying on the left, the needle on the probe is at the six o'clock position. I don't try and cross from right to left when I'm doing biopsies so that I can avoid um, damaging the urethra. And going back to the sepsis, I think also with MRI fusion, now that I'm not doing as many as biopsies, I'm not doing biopsies with everybody, every patient that has a PSA more than four, I'm seeing less. I mean, it still happens. It's less than 1%. But before, I did get patients with sepsis and a negative biopsy. And that's what you don't want. Because, I mean, you, you don't ever want sepsis. But if the patient has a lesion and he becomes infected, even if you give an antibiotic, I also give IV antibiotics because they're already on sedation. They still get an infection. You know, it, it, it's going to happen. Maybe what's going to happen regardless what, maybe it was something inside the prostate. So it wasn't about the transrectal part versus the perineal. That's right. I think MRI has such a big role in not just determining what kind of biopsy a patient has, but really in avoiding biopsy in a lot of patients. I think that's one of the real strengths of it. Because not only does biopsy have the risk of sepsis, which as you say is quite low, but an unnecessary biopsy has the quite high risk of diagnosing the patient with low-grade, low-volume Gleason 6 cancer, which is arguably maybe not as bad as sepsis, but it's pretty bad because now you're taking in some cases, a, yeah, if you're taking a 55-year-old person and you're putting them on active surveillance, you know, maybe the rest of their life or worse, they go on and have an invasive procedure that's not indicated because they're so worried about this low-grade cancer that was never going to do them any harm. So, I mean, I think that is just as big a, a risk of overdiagnosis is not discussed as much as the risk of sepsis, but is just as serious. I recently, last week, I saw a guy, 50-some-year-old, he had a Gleason 333 in two or three cores, and he received external radiation. I mean, a severe dose of onesa radiation, and now he has all the side effects, you know. So it still happens, so uh, yeah, and it's going to continue to happen. Jamil, have you advanced your, your prostate care to doing any minimally invasive treatments like these new, you know, focal ablative treatments? Yeah. So I will say that's not a huge part of my practice, but I do do cryoablation. Most of the patients who actually seek me out for cryoablation, some of them come from our local community, but um, a lot of them actually come from outside of it because they just know that I'm a provider of it. And I will say I end up turning down more cases than I accept as of 2023 because people, a lot of times it's patient-driven, the desire for focal therapy. They don't want surgery or radiation because they know the risks. But then you see their MRI and you realize they're not a candidate because doing whole gland cryoablation is no better than doing radiation or surgery. A lot of ways it's worse. And so to do hemicryo, they really have to have a clean contralateral lobe. I am doing those. So who will be your ideal candidate for cryo? The ideal candidate for cryo is going to be a focal lesion that's pyrus 4, pyrus 5 on MRI. It's going to be towards the base of the gland, okay, um, away from the urethra. And then all the template biopsies were negative. But we had a high-grade tumor, Gleason 3 plus 4 or above from that lesion. And yeah, and I think that's where other type of treatments will be more aggressive. I mean, it will be excessive treatment rather than, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, with, with focal cryo, I mean, patients do really well for the most part. A small percentage of them are going to go on to maybe have some degree of impotence, but it's usually well-controlled with medication. But most of them are not going to really have any side effects. 
The other type of cryo patients that I, I see from time to time are salvage cases as well. So they've already failed radiation. No one wants to go and remove the prostate gland after they've failed radiation, you know, so we have to try something different. That's the other space we use, focal cryo. Jamil, as we're uh, finishing up here, I wanted to get into post-procedure care and follow-up. After you've done either the biopsy or or even your, your cryoablation, once you get the results, what's that conversation with the patient? Do you have them come back in? Or are you calling them on the phone? Or are you talking to the urologist or the referring doc? Can you walk us through that? So I would say it varies. And it's still not an all-the-way clinical practice the way that they do it in breast where we don't see every patient back in person to review the biopsy results. But So what I've taken to doing is so we typically book these patients for about an hour, okay? Now about 20 minutes of that is the procedure, 25 minutes. And the other 20 to 25 minutes is actually like me talking to the patient before the procedure. And what I'll do is I will sit there and I will tell them everything I've told you guys in terms of this is what we're going to do. This is what a biopsy means. These are the complications you have to look out for. This is what it's going to feel like. And then I actually will talk through all the possibilities following their biopsy. I'll say, look, either you're going to have no cancer today, and then this is what's going to happen. Or you're going to have low-grade Gleason 6 cancer, and this is my opinion, if that's your diagnosis. Or you're going to have high-grade disease, and this is... So I really lay out philosophically what it's like to have high-grade versus low-grade versus no prostate cancer. And it's a long conversation. You know, I essentially recapitulate, like, the pathology of prostate cancer and the epidemiology with every single patient. And then I give them my phone number. And so... If they want to come back and talk to me later about it, or if they even want to come back in for a clinic visit, that's always open to them. And we do that. And that way I feel like I've served them. At the same time, the urologist who sent them to me, they're still the captain of the ship. But I'm saying, look, I'm an imaging specialist. This is my opinion. You're going to get opinions from your urologist, radiation, oncologist. Here's my opinion on what's going on. And so I kind of set the table so that no matter what their biopsy result ends up being, we've already discussed what my opinion is. Jamil, a question regarding the billing. Because you spend one hour with these patients. Yeah. At the end of the day, what do you bill? And, and we know that the biopsy really doesn't pay that much. It does not pay that much. So what are you billing? Well, some of these procedures are done actually in, in a hospital environment, to tell you the truth. Although it's it's not in the OR environment. It's just done in the, radio, in the ultrasound um, suite in the hospital environment. So I think they make enough money, is my sense of it. In terms of the outpatient side, it's a loss leader, you know, for sure. If you want to look at it from dollars and cents, the MRI business subsidizes the biopsy business. So yeah, it's on pound for pound, it's not a winner from a compensation standpoint. Like everything else in radiology, right? That's right. You know, I mean, although, although I just read that lungs only pay like 90 bucks on social media the other day, which I didn't, I was oblivious yeah, to. Yeah. I mean, lung biopsy is like some of the most dangerous procedures an interventional radiologist will perform. $90. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I think somebody said, yeah, it was, it was like $90 for this lung biopsy. It was like right next to the aorta. He was like, I just paid my locksmith 200 bucks to get my door open. You right. Know? And it took him five minutes. <laughs> it's really crazy. And can you be for the consult at least? That's a good question. I probably could be, and to tell you the truth, that I'm not. One thing that I do bill for is I bill for the diagnostic ultrasound. So they get billed for the biopsy, but also for a separate diagnostic ultrasound. And we actually, we do that ultrasound and we send it over as a separate study to be interpreted. So that's our way of recouping a little bit of that. The console pays $100, $120. I mean, you'll be yeah. missing a lot. It <laughs> right kind of recaptures a little bit of that, for sure. 
I'm a little bit oblivious in a way to the economics of it. The, the one thing I'll say is the biggest thing we've done is we didn't spend $200,000 on our fusion platform, right? That was the biggest cost savings we spent. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to speak because I don't know what Philips is selling this for, but I don't know. It's much, much less to, to get this perking app out on or to get some of these systems, which really medically are equivalent to your nav or Artemis. They're just more difficult to use, you know? So if you can develop the skills to use them, you save yourself hundreds of thousands of dollars at the outset of starting your program. Okay. So your nav and Artemis are more expensive yes. than perking nav, it sounds like. For sure. Okay. I didn't realize that. They're designed to make it very easy for the urologist to do. They don't have to do that much. The learning curve is lower. So that's where the cost comes from. Yeah. There's another component to the machine that actually knows where uh, the ultrasound probe is. So you don't have to do the, the mapping like, like, like you do and, and tell the machine, hey, this is where I'm at. This is over the points. The machine does that all for, for you. The other thing I tell all my patients that they're going to have some blood in their urine, in their semen, and from the rectum for anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks following the procedure. It's never serious blood loss. It's just disquieting to look at. In my opinion, it always goes away on its own, 100% of the time. So Yeah, I tell them, uh, blood in the stool two or three days, blood in the urine water two weeks, blood in the semen two to three months. Yeah. Well, actually, that's more than I tell them for semen, but maybe that's, maybe, yeah. It might even be in the semen for longer, so, but it's one less call that I get if right. in two months they still yeah. see in blood. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm going to wrap it up with final thoughts here. Any resources or papers that you'd recommend to our audience uh, who want to learn more about this, Jamil, whether they be urologists or radiologists? I don't know. Um, like I said, I, I read that Rosencrantz book, actually that online course you discussed, Aaron, I hadn't heard of that, but that sounds amazing. That sounds like a really good way to get a, a foundation. To a certain degree, I don't think there's any substitute for experience. There's certainly a lot in the urology literature about prostate biopsy. I know there was also a a good paper recently about transperineal prostate biopsy for the radiologist that came out, I think, last year. But what I would say is that the best thing you can do is to just to get involved to begin with as a radiologist, if you think that this is something that is conducive kind of in your local practice environment. One of the advantages I would also say is that when you have one radiologist doing these biopsies, he's seeing patients from multiple urologists. And so he's able to do higher volumes of cases and develop an expertise that it's hard, I think, for a single urologist who's only biopsying their own patients to get because they're all funneling through this common point. So that's the other thing I would add. I just, I think that this is an area that we have so much to offer because urologists are not trained to read MRIs. And honestly, for most interventional radiologists, doing an ultrasound-guided biopsy is not that big a jump from what we already do, even though it's through a new portal here, which is transrectal or transperineal. But you're still doing transrectal because you have an ultrasound probe in the rectum. I think we have a lot to offer here, and I think this is a huge public health issue. You know, we talk about PAE is a wonderful procedure. It's for a very common problem, BPH. Prostate cancer is as common as BPH. And it's something that hundreds and thousands of people, of men, struggle with. And we have the opportunity to intervene and do a lot of good in terms of preventing bad outcomes, both under diagnosis front and on the over diagnosis front. Yeah, because before there was MRI fusion, urologists are just doing this under ultrasound guidance, right, Hoche? Well, I, I wouldn't say before. I, I mean, there's your, your, the urologists in your area, they're still doing it. And then, they, and then they're sending the ones that are negative to you. Right. So they're doing a template biopsy in a lot of cases. Then the template biopsy is negative. Then they get the MRI. Yeah, that's, that's how I was doing it. I mean, eight to 10 years ago, 
But now, I mean, I think we, we should be better as urologists and, and doing less for the patient. Yeah, because when I think of my urologist who I see, like he books up our ultrasound rooms, you know, once a week, half a day, once a week, he's doing, he's in there cranking out biopsies, but it's only under ultrasound. And so that's why I was like, I was thinking, well, I've never seen a radiologist do that. I've heard of a radiologist doing it with MR fusion, but never heard of a radiologist doing it strictly under ultrasound. Have you, Jamil? I mean, just myself. I guess, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, no, but purely ultrasound. Yeah, uh, we shouldn't go that back yeah. to that. I mean, yeah. we should continue to move forward right. and use technology. I mean, did you ever do that, Jamil? Oh, n just doing template biopsy? Yeah. There have been times when I, I have done that, but yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty uncommon. I mean, you can just imagine, this, is, this will just be a parting thought I have. Like, think about in the breast imaging world. If you have breast MRIs and mammograms being interpreted by radiologists, but then the breast surgeon was doing the biopsies and handling the patient from there. You, know, you think about how much poorer the practice of women's imaging would be without that essential component of getting the rad path correlation, seeing the, you know, the lesions yourself under ultrasound. This is why someone who's been doing mammography for 20 years, they have a leg up versus someone who's been doing it for five years, you know, because that data bank has built up and they've been able to iteratively improve, you know. I think that's really the missing thing right now in prostate MRI. I don't see us getting better quickly enough as a specialty. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jamil. Appreciate all the insight. And I, I hope this is helpful for both our endometriology audience as well as the urology audience. Uh, Oche, thanks for also bringing in the insightful questions from the urology perspective. It was, it was good. It was good. Thank you. I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate having both yeah, Dr. Fritz and Dr. Silva here because it really is a you know, multi-specialty kind of issue. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer, design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 